Well, it Amen. is uh, only natural for us to come and give praise and thanks. I don't know how many of you saw our table at the beginning. We have a gratitude table that I want to make sure before, it's sort of a group activity project that before you leave tonight, we want you to contribute to. We have our, our special um, scribe who helped design it, Angela, who uh, lent her right brain and her right arm to uh, sharing some of her design work with us, and, and so I appreciate that. Uh, speaking of gratitude, there's lots to be thankful for this week. Uh, one of the things that I'm just uh, encouraged by is that we have uh, three people who are spending every other week in um, a Burmese refugee apartment teaching a group of about nine students uh, English. And so um, Jess and Kristen and Kyle have been spending on Tuesdays working with a group of refugees and just showing up. And the beauty of it is it's far from a classroom. It's a living room environment where relationships are happening. And it's a chance, I think, not to just give a hand out, but a hand up. And I think the American dream is so much more possible when English is a part of the equation and you can actually speak the language. And so we can offer a lot, and we have. We've offered groceries, and we've offered rides, and we've offered cars, and we've offered resume work. But the fact that we can uh, provide language, again, goes into this beautiful picture of what it means to work out God's kingdom of heaven on earth. This is part of what God meant when he bestowed on us the beauty of his salvation. And so it's a beautiful thing. One other thing that's happening this week is we have a birthday, and this kid's celebrating a birthday tomorrow, and uh, we're pretty excited about that. Happy, happy birthday, Wesley. Because uh, 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 everyone likes to celebrate their birthday, uh, at least those of us who aren't 30 yet. Uh, um, we still count them. Uh, but uh, I had a chance to walk around East last week, uh, yesterday with, uh, with, with Wesley and Angela and the Overstreets and uh, East Austin studio tour. And so, oh, it just worked out that we were having a little meal together. Uh, that was a well-timed thing. Hey, but it is Advent season. And, um, well, it's coming up on Advent season. And there's so much that can crowd out something sacred, something extremely meaningful about... Christmas. And so we're inviting everyone, especially parents, to kind of ratchet it up in the spiritual leadership category and host a kind of Christmas that would be, um, I think, a little bit more centered and special. Uh, and so I have included on the, um, on the app and the website some detailed information about how to explain Advent, maybe how to set up an Advent wreath. In fact, I included links on the website so that you can just buy a ready-made Advent wreath and, ca and candles, um, but I also had some resources that I put on there as well. One, if you want to kind of go through it uh, in an adult way, this is a wonderful meditation just to go through Advent. Uh, Henry Nowen wrote this, and it's, it's a simple, easy daily read. You can just leave it on your kitchen table or the kitchen counter, and it's just a nice thing. Um, if you kind of want to step up your game, I found this resource that I think is really wonderful. It's an Advent book. Uh, and it comes with a little devotional. So if you guys are having family dinner time, again, this, both of these links are on the website. And it's got a little booklet that you can follow along. And then each day, you open up a day and you get to decorate the tree together. So how precious is that? I mean, come on, people. 
Christmas is just better with this. So get with the program and uh, get your Advent on. And again, there's so much, there's so much commercial, uh, there's so much um, emotion uh, that goes into this season of the year. And so I would just encourage you to just kind of center yourselves, kind of um, focus yourselves on, on the Advent calendar. And um, again, I would uh, encourage you, uh, if you haven't already downloaded the app and allow for some notifications, I've updated all the things that are going on. We have tribe Christmas parties going on. And we have our candlelight Christmas service on a Monday night coming up. And um, the first weekend of the month, we like to do church as tribe. And so that's just different expressions of our rhythms together. Um, I would just mention, we're, I'm going to be going back to uh, do some breakfast with some of our Burmese friends. Some of you have met um, Van and his wife Lily, who's getting great with child, so tis the season. Uh, and we just want to have a time of fellowship, make some breakfast tacos, and um, they love it when we come in and offer prayer. And this is a, an apartment that we haven't been to yet uh, to ask for prayer. And that's something that they kind of put a premium on, and that's something that I think I can um, facilitate, but also learn from. So if you'd like to participate in that, just let me know. It's on Sunday morning, the 2nd. We're going to go from 9 to 11. It's a great way also to bring your kids and have a little activity and bring them because we believe in doing laboratory more than Sunday school, okay? Uh, and so it's at this time I want to just encourage the parents to lay a hand on their child, and we want to send them out with this blessing. Uh, we have Miss Joella and Miss Erin that are going to be guiding our kids, and we're making nothing but good choices, except Ace is totally bolting. <laughs> And so we're just going to bless them with this and saying together, uh, the Lord bless you as you continue your time of worship. And you guys say, nailed it. Okay, make good choices. Don't be the bad kid. Okay. If you've ever spent much time in, um, in the Rockies, specifically in, in Vail or Aspen, they're, they're, they're kind of sister cities. They, they, it's a very unique place. Uh, I've had the, the privilege of being through several times. Um, I actually have a friend who's pastored in Vail, uh, and, and it's diff like he, he'll have a church of like 300 that in the next week, because the season changed, it goes to 700. Because everyone who happens to own a third home in Vail shows up for the season. And so his attendance is just up and down. But it's, as you can imagine, a very elite kind of clientele. And it's, you could be standing in any given line, whether it be the ice cream shop or the coffee shop or the ski rental, and be next to A-listers. It's just one of those places. Well, because my friend lived there and he has five kids, he gets to know the community. Uh, uh, and so he told me this funny story about... Um, there's a gentleman who owns kind of the it sushi shop in town. Uh, and, and it's called um, Madahasi. Madahasi. It's some Japanese name. And he's got one in Vail and one in Aspen. And his teenage daughter was babysitting for the owners. And so the owners are sharing all of their plight. And when you're dealing with A-listers, they all come with their own special requests, right? At least this is what we know because clearly... We're all B-listers. 
Uh, so what I hear is that they have some demands. Well, uh, so one night into his, uh, his, his store in, in Aspen, um, Jack Nicholson was there, and um, Jack has a way of wanting to smoke us an after-dinner cigar, uh, except that there's no smoking allowed. And so the owner says, Jack, no smoke. Uh, I hope that doesn't offend, but that was, he's not from here, he's Asian. Uh, and, uh, and so he's like, oh, come on, well, what's it going to take? And he's like, you know, and I guess Jack's kind of a regular. He knows him, and so this is kind of his joint, and this is his friend, and he tips well, and he's known, and he's Jack, so why not? And so he's like, Jack, no smoke. Uh, and, and so he goes, look, tell you what, and, and I can't do a Jack Nicholson impersonation. Uh, but he says, look. How about if I get everyone in the restaurant to agree to it? Can, can I then smoke? And he goes, Jack, no. And he says, oh, just let me at least ask. He says, okay. So Jack Nicholson stands up in front of the whole restaurant. He says, I would like to smoke a cigar now in your presence. Um, I'm told that I can't, but if you all will agree to it and allow me to do it, I'll buy everyone whatever bottle of wine you want on the menu. Everyone's like, hey! Smoke them if you got them. You know what I mean? It's like, and so Jack Nicholson gets to smoke. Because there's something about the presence of greatness that creates tremendous privilege. Does it not? And we kind of go, must be nice. On another story, Mariah Carey shows up. Although it was after closing time. But she shows up because A-listers don't show up alone or with a friend, they show up with an entourage. And she shows up, and again, she's a regular at this guy's famous sushi shop, and says, can we stay? He says, sorry, we're closed. And she says, well, I know, I know, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it worth your while. And he's like, we've had a long day, thank you, no. Uh, because I guess when you're used to just A-listers coming through, it's sort of like, no, we, want, we have families, we wanna go home. Uh, and then she starts going back and forth. And, you know, her, I guess it started with her handlers, and then she emerged and starts the negotiation, and it gets down to this. Okay. We make dinner if you sing. And so all of the staff come out, and all of the... And Mariah sang so that her entourage could now open up the kitchen again and have a dinner. Now, so here's my point, is that presence, the presence of greatness creates such privilege. And I would contend that when, you know, privilege is one of those things that we all need to own. Uh, and privilege is one of those things you could ask, who is it in that setting is more privileged? Is it the staff? Is it the owner? Is, is, it, is it the other restaurateurs or the, the other patrons who get to receive the, the bottle of wine? Because everyone's on the receiving end of some kind of undeserved, unmerited privilege. Now, you could say the A-listers have their privilege, they have wealth, they have fame, they also have high-priced headaches, so it all comes with a certain level of responsibility. But when we talk about God's presence, what we're really talking about is something that can feel both hard and good, both really convicting and also really comforting. There is this notion that when we get to talking about the spirit of the living God, who we want to fall afresh on us, that it should feel like a goosebump. It should feel like a mountaintop high. But oftentimes, when we encounter God's presence, 
it can create unrest. It can create a kind of stirring in us. It can create a restlessness. And that is a good thing. See, I think we're all exposed to something that is quite privileged, and that is the presence of God. And we started a series uh, on the Shema. The Shema was an ancient Hebrew prayer that was prayed morning and night. It was considered like our Pledge of Allegiance. The day didn't begin without speaking the Shema out loud. And, and, and strict observers would make it their final words as well. And it starts in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord thy God with all, our heart, with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your soul. And then it goes on to talk about how to do that and what to do with that. But there is something when we encounter the presence of God that we get to experience God's greatest blessing, except that that blessing doesn't always feel the best. It doesn't always feel super encouraging. Any more than going to a gym and having a really intense workout can feel really good, except that it is both hard and good. And so the question I have tonight, and we've been working our way through, is what does it mean when he says to love God with all of our soul? Because soul in that picture, in that wording, is really important for us to understand. Now we understand that Jesus taught about this as the greatest commandment of all. But understanding what it means about the soul, the nephesh in the Hebrew, really might change our understanding of what God is calling and inviting us into. So let's just watch a quick video to set up what it means to love God with all of our soul. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the word soul. The Hebrew word is nephesh. It occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament. The common English translation of this word is soul, and that's kind of unfortunate. Here's why. The English word soul comes with lots of baggage from ancient Greek philosophy. It's the idea that the soul is a non-physical, immortal essence of a person that's contained or trapped in their body to be released at death. It's a ghost in the machine kind of idea. This notion is totally foreign to the Bible. It's not at all what nephesh means in biblical Hebrew. The most basic meaning of nephesh is throat. Like when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, they're hungry and thirsty, and they say to God, we miss the cucumbers and melons we had in Egypt. Now our nephesh has dried up. Or when Joseph was hauled off into slavery in Egypt, his nephesh was put into iron shackles. But nephesh doesn't only mean throat. Since your whole life and body depend on what comes in and out of your throat, nephesh could also be used to refer to the whole person. Like in Genesis, there were 33 nephesh in Jacob's family, that is, 33 people. In the Torah, a murderer is called a nephesh slayer, and a kidnapper is called a nephesh thief. On the first pages of the Bible, both humans and animals are called a living nephesh. And if the life breath has left a human or animal, the nephesh remains. 
It's just called a dead nephesh, that is, a corpse. So, in the Bible, people don't have a nephesh. Rather, they are a nephesh, a living, breathing, physical being. Now, that might surprise you because most people assume the Bible says the soul is what survives apart from the body after death. And while the biblical authors do have a concept of people existing after death, waiting for their resurrection, they rarely talk about it. And when they do, they don't use the word nephesh. So even though nephesh is often translated as soul, the Hebrew word really refers to the whole human as a living physical organism. In fact, this is why biblical people can often use this word to refer to themselves and it gets translated me or I. Like in Psalm 119, most translations read, let me live that I may praise you. In Hebrew, the poet literally says, let my nephesh live that it may praise you. By using nephesh, the poet emphasizes that their entire being, their life and their body offer thanks to God. In the Song of Songs, the young woman constantly refers to her lover as the one my nephesh loves. And of course, love isn't just an intellectual experience, it's an emotion that activates your whole body, your entire nephesh. This helps us understand the brilliance of other biblical poets who could combine multiple meanings of nephesh in one place. Like in Psalm 42, we read, as the deer pants for the water, so my nephesh pants after you. My nephesh thirsts for the living God. So on a physical level, your throat can be thirsty, like a deer's, but then that physical thirst can become a metaphor for how your whole physical being longs to know and be known by your creator. Which brings us all the way back to the Shema. To love God with all of your nephesh means to devote your whole physical existence to your creator, the one who granted us these amazing bodies in the first place. It's about offering your entire being with all of its capabilities and limitations in the effort to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the Hebrew word for soul. If you're not familiar with, uh, go to the next slide. Uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with, oh, that one back. Uh, the, uh, the idea of um, the Bible Project. It's a website and it is just one of the great resources out there. They've gone through every book of the Bible as well as key themes of the Bible. And so if you were ever like going through uh, like some personal study or just were trying to understand why and what and who uh, a, a different passage or a, a different book was written, this is one of the best resources out there. And, and I just love what they're doing. Um, but the idea of a soul is really important because it talks about all of us, all of our lives. It's not just some kind of unique category of our life. Uh, and so the idea that the Jewish interpretation of love the Lord your God with all of your soul is actually should be love God with all of our lives. Uh, and so this is what Jesus was calling us to. Uh, and he himself did love the Lord and us with all of his life to his very last breath. It becomes quite the challenge to love God with our whole lives. I love God categorically until I'm not sure I can make ends meet. Uh, and so I want to maybe take control of my own finances. I love God, except that I can't trust him with certain relationships. I love God, except that I don't always see um, his faithfulness today. I love God, except that I can't let go of what that person has done to me. And so we live, not with our whole lives given to God, we live categorically in saying, God, I love you, but I can't trust you with this. 
And what, what we're invited into is to trust, to give, to surrender our whole lives. And that's why salvation is such a process. And when we boil salvation down to simply getting saved and avoiding hell, we miss the transformational journey that we're invited into. Now, when I'm studying this week, the one person that kept coming up in my mind again and again is, is, is Elizabeth Elliot. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. They were missionaries down in Peru in the 50s. They did not go down together. In fact, she was living some three hours away in a different remote part. They had studied linguistics and they were trying to translate into languages that didn't even have alphabets. But they started courting and so they eventually, she moves over to where he was and they start doing this work with what was the Aka Indians. And the Aka Indians was kind of a native, unreached, cannibalistic tribe that had just been sort of untouched by civilization. And here, with his you know, missionary friends, Jim Elliott sort of finds a way, he, 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 he's the pilot and they go in, and, except that the Aka Indians end up killing him uh, with a spear, and so uh, she ends up staying there. At this point in their marriage, this is like, he, he died in 1956, so she stays there another three years, but um, she ended up taking um, a, her, her three-year-old uh, daughter and moving down, there, or staying down there, excuse me, but finding someone from the village, from the people, taught her the language, and then she moves in with them for about five or six years. They eventually figure out who this lady is. Elizabeth Elliot goes to live with the people who killed their husband because they just didn't know any better except this white man coming from the outside. This is Elizabeth Elliot. And so uh, she died in 2015 at 88. The last few years she was really battling dementia. But she had a radio program for years. This is a lady who was three times widowed. Not by, like, like she had good marriages. But the first guy's martyred in, in, in the jungle. Uh, and then she married this other gentleman, and then he passed away, and then she married this other guy who, I, uh, you know, he passed away as well. She had a radio program for years, but she had such a conviction about the presence and the spirit of a living God that really defined, I'm going to give God the whole of my life, even when circumstances are heart-wrenching, impossible, I say yes. This is Elizabeth Elliot. Um, hard life, pure in heart, but completely privileged, I believe, with the presence of God that became this unwavering faith in the face of loss and hardship. In fact, she had a quote that she said, um, she did a talk, and this was one, I, uh, in 2015, I must have listened to over 20 of her podcasts that I could find. I, I just started downloading them, and I'd go for a run, and I'd, I just want to hear her teach. It was this unashamed, in-your-face kind of teaching from this little old lady who had such a, just an internal strength about her. She spoke with such authority. Um, and so, um, not afraid, uh, she's not warm fuzzy, she's not touchy-feely, she's kind of an in-your-face kind of preacher, but she had lots of things, if you Google Elizabeth Elliott quotes, you'll have some reading to do, but one she says, and she did this talk called Hearts Set on Pilgrimage, 
because that's a great image for what it means to work out our salvation, that we're all pilgrims and we're on a pilgrimage where we're taking this journey of faith and wanting it to produce something in our lives that doesn't look like just survival, but it looks like we start to thrive. Here's what she said. A heart set on pilgrimage is going to have to go through some tears in order for us to be made in the image of God. And then she says this, Oh, what I owe to the file, the hammer, and the furnace of my Lord Jesus Christ. Mike, you're thanking God for the file, the hammer, and the furnace? And I would imagine that if we made this into one big living room, we could each speak to times of the file, uh, of, a, of a hammer and a furnace uh, of seasons of our lives, circumstances of our lives that we could relate to. But this is what she is choosing to be grateful for. This is what she is thanking God for, which doesn't feel like my level of gratitude. I'm like, thank you, Jesus, all my family's in town. Thank you, Jesus, that, you know, I, you know, I get my way a lot. I mean, thank you, Jesus, that I've got it good and better than a lot. Yeah, I mean, and she's like, no, thank you, Jesus, for the file, the hammer, and the furnace. I'm like, okay, she's on to something that's transformational, so I just wanted to pay a little bit more attention. And so if you and I believe that God cares, that God loves, that God is present, then we also need to learn or acquire the ability to see God even in the face of opposition. So when we encounter God's presence, and it is privileged, but it doesn't feel good. It feels difficult. It feels like a struggle. It feels grating. We understand that God is still with us. God's presence represents our greatest privilege. So I just wanted to kind of share some thoughts on the file. And I just asking the question, what are the jagged edges of your life that need wearing down? Are there areas of your life that probably need some softening? Chances are, it's hard for us to see these. We all live with blind spots. This is why I believe life change doesn't happen without direct mentoring or what we would call apprenticing. That's our rhythm. The reason is, is that we all need someone further along, but we all need to bring bringing someone along. That's how transformation works. We cannot self-help our way into a new kind of existence. We need people speaking to our potential, but holding up a mirror and saying, Sunday, this wasn't your finest hour. You know, when you say this, it comes off like this. I'm like, wow, that's not what I meant. Do you have people that have been able to kind of dull down some of your jagged edges? Is that something you're able to do with those closest, like your kids? Don't just get on your kids because they do annoying things. I mean, do that too because they annoy me. Uh, but, uh, you know, coach them. Speak to their potential. And these are the things that I think God invites us into. Now, the Shema prayer because we're talking about prayer. We're talking about the presence of God. The Shema begins with this daily prayer, listen, people of God. It starts with, hear, O Israel. What if our prayer life began with an attentiveness, not a grocery list? Could we set aside time to wait on God? Yeah, I've got to commute, but I'm just going to pause. It's going to be quiet. 
Do we, do we have still moments where it begins with listening? And then it says, the, the, the Lord is one, the Lord our God. There was something, the way this was written, it's speaking about the personal nature of God, not the corporate presence of God, not some generic knowing of God, God in the most personal sense. And it uses the word Yahweh, which we understand as as close as a breath, the unspeakable name of God. And this man, it was going to be personal. And this is one of my big concerns when people come to church and are allowed to fade away. One of the reasons why I don't want to grow so big is because I don't want you to be anonymous. Faith doesn't get to grow and be transformational if we exist in the multitudes. God is personal and so should our community be. And so uh, how might God, I would just simply ask, how might faith, um, how might your life start to be a little annoying, start to be uh, a little bothersome? And I would just say, maybe those are the areas that God, through God's Spirit, is trying to file away some of the jagged edges. The second thing she says is, oh, thank God for the hammer. Now, none of us like that feeling of running into a brick wall or banging our heads against a wall, feeling like we're still in this kind of stuck place. But uh, do you have sort of a reoccurring wound, annoying fear, an overwhelming insecurity, something that keeps you mildly stuck or paralyzed from growing beyond it. And this is what, is there an area just have a hard time trusting God more? And I would believe that we're invited to let God hammer on us like putting our lives on an anvil and it begins to shape us into something beautiful. Now, let me paint a couple of pictures for you. I was often raised with the idea that the word of God is the sword of the Lord, and I actually don't like that imagery because whenever I hear about a sword, that's usually something that's to bludgeon someone else. And if some of you grew up with a faith tradition, someone might have used the Bible to be kind of a a blunt object in your life, but what if, scripture was used maybe in my life and shared with another like a scalpel that in the hands of a surgeon could be precise healing was always within reach right now there's a uh, a passage that comes out of john chapter 5 jesus stumbles into uh the, the temple courts and there was this pool that was said that the angels would come down and stir and whoever could get into it first was going to be healed and there was this guy that was crippled for 38 years and jesus asked him the obvious question do you want to be healed and the question is is why is he asking what feels obvious to which i would say consent for god to be able to shape our lives to hammer out the impurities of our lives there has to be consent otherwise we end up repeating the same thing so we go from one relationship to the next one job to the next one family dilemma to the next and some of the same patterns follow us until god pounds out some of the impurities of our lives god's presence allows for us to be some of the most privileged people because 
our condition isn't left to just rot. The third thing she says is, oh, thank God for the furnace. And I'm like, really? Really? The furnace? Because um, I don't know if you felt like you've been burned. <laughs> I don't know if you feel like uh, uh, there's an area of your life that needs some kind of purifying. But loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength is something we uh, can't simply do when it's either comfortable or it's convenient. That at our leisure, we'll give ourselves to God. At our convenience, he'll shape us into something beautiful. There is something purifying about going through the fire. So now, as people of God who have a faith, we can now look back at hard areas of our life and say, God, I never want to go through that again, except that I can see the redemptive thread of a living God and seeing how it's shaped me today. I've heard people give testimonies about uh, uh, th th their parents divorcing as a child and say, it was awful, except that this is what I learned from it. Or someone coming through uh, cancer and saying, I felt so out of control, I felt so vulnerable, except that this is what it produced in me. It wasn't until I went actually physically, financially bankrupt that I actually learned gratitude. Or whatever the case might be, we would never want to go through it. But because we're people of faith, we have a larger perspective about God weaving this narrative, redemptive thread through our lives. Do you have furnaces that you can actually look at and now begin to give God the praise for? It's Thanksgiving, folks, because what we want to do in practicing the rhythm of gratitude is give God thanks for the hard and the good. And that's when we know we're beginning to sense and see God's spirit. And we worship God. We follow God with the whole of our lives. Quoting again from Elizabeth Elliot, she said, Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And we're always wondering aloud, I don't know what God is doing. But Elizabeth Elliot asked the question, where did we get the idea that God owes us an explanation? I'm like, okay, Miss 85-year-old woman, like, bring in the heat. Like, are you serious? Like, like you... because I don't fully trust God at time, I feel like God owes me an explanation. I like to shake my fist at God. I like to get a sort of hold God in contempt. And, and yet, I'm really called to surrender and say, not my will, but yours be done. So the Shema is this beautiful invitation for us to listen. Does your prayer life feel like it's an inviting of God to speak? Or is it a chance for you to be heard? Because both are good, but both are needed. And then it's a chance to become more and more personal with God. And mostly, it's a chance to exercise faith. Does your prayer life seem like an exercise of faith? Or does it seem like a defensive posture? Oh God, protect and keep and bless and do this. Or does it seem like, God, your kingdom come, your will be done? Because God's inviting us to use prayer as our greatest spiritual resource to tap into the presence of God. Love God with your whole life. We have a table uh, that I would love for you to contribute to. And maybe even it's during our worship time uh, that you would like to just come and, and you know, kind of mosey back there before the kids get back and you just you don't even have to like initial it but just start to list the things that you're grateful for the hard and the good 
In fact, I would love for everyone to name something hard and something good. Because in essence, I think that God's in both of those things. And let's that be part of our worship tonight. So that's what we're going to do in closing. But I've been saying, uh, I seeded this other idea. Because the rest of the passage goes on to talk about what we're supposed to do. The Shema. Can we go to the next slide? And it says this. Uh, oops, do we have the, uh, there we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul uh, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them. When? Do you remember the four times? The four times is when you sit at home, which I like to think is mealtime. And when you walk along the road, which I like to think of as taxi time, when you lie down and when you get up, bedtime and breakfast. There are times, whether you have kids or not, that you can interact with God and be reminded of God's faithfulness, of the hard and the good. There are times that you can just kind of center yourself and say, I want to give you the whole of my life. And maybe that begins with confession and consent. But then he goes on to say, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so I, wanting to be a little literal, thought this would be really fun if we had a way, because what we've said yes to is a living faith. What we've said yes to is a community of practice. We want to be able to tell the story of God in common and everyday vernacular. So we created the rhythms. I don't know how many of you have all seven of them memorized, but I would love for you to be able to impress them upon your kids, which means, friends, you gotta learn them. Secondly, do we have good working definitions? Because this is how we can begin to have an experience with God, have Christ formed in us, use our faith for the benefit of others, but pass on a living faith. So, we have some built by buddy designs. Not only do I want you to start putting your Advent wreaths together, I am looking to let your witness shine at home. So when neighbors and when friends and when family come over, we've created a couple of images that I thought made for really good posters. These two are going to get framed and they're going to go right above our kitchen table because I want to be able to have these things present. So people are like, what's that about? Well, I'll tell you. Because when you sit down at supper, and you're kind of needing to work on gratitude, or you're wanting to have maybe a spiritual conversation, or you're wanting to take inventory of your day and categorize it in the faithfulness of God, you have language that you can use at home. And so I'm like, all right, Old Testament, let's, okay. We're not gonna write it on our door frames, but I might hang it over my kitchen table. Buddy, these turned out so great. Uh, you should do this for a living. Stop hobbying in it. <laughs> like, this is your day job right here. Uh, and he made these for us. Uh, and so we actually have um, copies for if you want to take these home with uh, your family and, and do something similar with them. You see our model there. You can't take those. Those are the overstreets. Uh, but I've, we, we framed up a couple. Um, What's the measurement? Twelve by sixteen. Super cheap. IKEA ten dollar frames. Boom! Like that's the best cheapest artwork you're gonna find. 
uh, and it's going to be the best conversation piece in your house. So, friends, the whole point of the Shema is for us to have a growing awareness of the presence of God. That's why we have rhythms. That's why we're trying to be as tangible as we can is because sometimes God, in all his spiritual awareness, is as concrete as, as, as simple acts of kindness. But we want to be able to have kind of a vernacular, a way to describe what God is doing in us and around us and how to impart that into our children.